Welcome to Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Bishop has returned from Baltimore and the fall meeting of U.S. bishops. On this episode, he gives us a behind-the-scenes peek into the Eucharistic document's overwhelming passage and other meeting highlights, including the possible canonization of three Americans and changes to the Priestly Formation Program. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop. And did you get all of your Black Friday and Cyber Monday shopping done? No, not at that, all. You, you, do you, I wasn't even aware. <laughs> you, you don't you don't line up outside Best Buy at 3 a.m.? No, 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 not at all. No, no, okay. no. You know what I try to do, Kyle, with Christmas shopping is like I'll buy stuff through the year and just put them in my closet until Christmas time comes. Uh-huh. And that really works so much better. Yeah. You know, then I just go and try to remember who I got what for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just divide it up evenly. Yeah. Do you re-gift much? You probably get given a lot uh, of religious a things. Bit, a little yeah. bit. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, I have to be careful not to re-gift to the person who gave right. it to me. Yeah. <laughs> Or, you know, I shouldn't say this on the air, but or getting a gift card and using the money to buy a gift for somebody else. <laughs> have you ever done that? I don't know if I have. I'm not. You know the the love languages. Yes. And one of them is gift giving. That's yeah. not mine. I don't. I don't enjoy getting gifts very yeah. much, and yeah. I certainly don't enjoy giving gifts very much. Yeah. I enjoy giving gifts. Uh huh. I'm not a bit. I'm not real thrilled about like shopping a lot, but but I do enjoy like especially with my nieces and nephew. And yeah. Now I have a grand nephew, and I was buying some little. Uh, he was just born in October, and I was, you know, it was it was strange getting back to buying for a little baby again uh-huh. uh, because it's been years since my nephews and nephew and nieces were born. So now it's like getting back to buying children's stuff, which was kind of cool. Yeah. Well, Bishop, moving on here a little bit to some, maybe a little bit deeper conversation. We talked before the USCCB meeting about, well, two big things that were happening. One was the document on the Eucharist that you were presenting. And the other was the document on responsible investing. So I wondered if you could just give us a little wrap up on how things went. Uh, I was able to watch some of the live coverage and saw you up there presenting and people, you know, having questions and feedback and a little bit about debates about different language things. So, but you did pass the uh, vote. And so the Eucharistic document is approved as, as is, right? Yeah. I mean, there were some minor amendments, uh but, um, and they were amendments that we had approved, that the Committee okay. on Doctrine approved. Yeah, I was very pleased. Um, it was a busy week. You know, Saturday I had a meeting of the Administrative Committee and talked there. And then Sunday the Doctrine Committee met uh, many hours and we uh-huh. finalized things from the modifications that we had received, suggested modifications that we had received in in the past month since we had sent the document to all the U.S. bishops. Um, and About then, how many modifications were there? Um, you know, that's a good question. I, I would say we might have received 50 suggested modifications and mm-hmm. we might have accepted uh, a little less than half. Okay. So that was a lot of work on on Sunday, and then on uh, Monday we had a mo- morning of prayer, which was really beautiful. It's a great way to begin the week together, and it's the first time that we've been in person since the pandemic right. began. So it was just wonderful to be able to be together. Especially this was new. We usually had time of prayer at the end of the November meeting. I really like it so much more that we pray at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, we have mass. Uh, we had actually Monday evening. We had mass at the Basilica of the Assumption in Baltimore with the First Cathedral, which I love that cathedral, and and it was the uh, 200th anniversary of its dedication, and it was just so beautiful. And I, I love going there. It brings back a lot of memories from when I was at Mount St. Mary's, and I'd be at, in Baltimore frequently. 
and Archbishop Laurie gave a, a wonderful homily. Hmm. Um, but anyhow, that morning we had had this morning of, of prayer, and Archbishop Kurtz of Louisville gave a great talk on um, on really on encouragement, um, hmm. and he shared, you know, the name Barnabas, who means son of encouragement. So the importance of of um, of encouraging each other, and also how important it is that by our love and prayers we try to encourage others but then he reflected on the encouragement he received from his older sister when he was a young priest her love and encouragement and it was really i mean that reminded me of my sister but also interestingly enough as he shared about his older sister his older sister was a good friend of my mom what they were classmates in this little town in Pennsylvania, in the coal regions, Mahanoy City. Wow. So I'm thinking of his mother, his older sister and my mother and how he shared that. And then I thought about how my mother encouraged my vocation, just uh -huh. like his older sister encouraged his vocation. Anyhow, that's just a little bit of an aside. Um, well, but, how much of that was set up for you guys to be inspired to encourage us, the, the members of your diocese, and how much of it was it to set up a spirit of encouraging one another when there's been some division within the USCCB? Yeah, I, I think this was actually um, planned even before we had the June meeting where there was the uh, public debate mm -hmm. and disagreements. So this was already in the works okay. uh, a year ago or two years ago. But I think it's we should always do it because we call, we're asking the Holy Spirit then to enter and to guide us mm -hmm. in our deliberations during our annual meeting or biannual meeting, I should say. Mm -hmm. And that was so important. We had a morning with Eucharistic adoration. Priests came in to hear confessions. So we had the opportunity to receive the sacrament of reconciliation, which was great. Mm -hmm. And then that afternoon, we began the actual meeting and it was an executive session. That means it was not public. And that's good that every time we meet, we have also a time when we're not in the media spotlight where we can just, you know, share without thinking about, you know, the media. And, and I was able to, to um, well, I'm not supposed to talk about executive session, but obviously the document on the Eucharist yeah. came up. And then it was the next day, Tuesday, that I presented it and, and answered questions of the body of bishops. Doctrine Committee met Tuesday night to review all the, uh, the, the amendments and um, decide which we would accept, which we would not accept, or accept with modifications. Mm -hmm. That was a late night. That was, that was probably the hardest part of the week for me because it was late and trying to, I don't know, late at night trying to think clearly. Right. You know, it was a little challenging after a full day of meetings, but, but we did it. Um, and by the way, it's a wonderful committee. The doctrine committee, the bishops on the committee, and our lay consultants were really good, and the staff as well. And then the next day, I presented it formally on Wednesday for mm -hmm. the vote. And everyone was very surprised, even shocked, that um, what was the vote? 222 to 8? Yeah, it was 222 to 8 to 3. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of um, joy uh, after the vote uh -huh. was uh, announced. The bishops, there was sustained applause. It showed, I think, the the work of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. It kind of confounded uh, certain members of the media who were kind of like looking for that there was going to be this big battle or whatever. Right. And they couldn't really figure it out. Some of them were critical that we... And I'm like, how can you be critical? We came together on this. <laughs> yeah. And um, but other media was very fair and very accurate. But I think it was um, really a good example of how to discern. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is what the upcoming synod is about. You know, it's the idea not of like coming and just one's own opinions being like that's all about wanting what one wants. No, mm -hmm. it's about. What does God want? Right. And discernment. And that requires listening to one another in a spirit of charity, of love, and then praying 
and then moving forward. And that's how this developed. And I explained that in the press conferences. I'm not sure everyone kind of understands because it's so different than, let's say, the way Congress operates mm-hmm. or the po- in politics, you know. People have their positions, and it's uh, you don't really see that modeled very much these days anyhow. Right. But I thought it was really good, and I think it's going to be good for the church. Uh, I just sent the document uh, last week to all of our priests, deacons, and seminarians, so so it can be incorporated into adult education in parishes and homilies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really encourage the listeners to to check it out. And to read it slowly and prayerfully, uh, the first half, and I've talked about this on the show before, the Eucharist as a gift, and then the second half is our reception of that gift. And I think there's a lot of good theology, there's good spirituality, the example of saints. So I, I hope that it will really bear uh, a lot of good fruit, especially with the upcoming three-year Eucharistic revival. Which I want to talk about that. Before we do, though, we went through this in pretty good detail a couple episodes back. So if people want to hear more about the document, that's a great kind of introduction to it besides you know, reading the document itself. Any changes from the original version of it to the amendments that were accepted that were substantial or things that you were really glad that got added in or tweaked or anything? I would say nothing substantial. Okay. There was some change to the introduction. We still have that image of Pope Francis you know, holding the monstrance in an empty St. Peter's Square during the pandemic. One of the amendments was that we moved into some of the teaching of St. John Paul II, which I really liked because it it kind of put together both Pope, what Pope Francis did and then how John Paul reminded us when he reflected on the words of Jesus, I am with you always to the end of the age, really in the Eucharist. Um, so I think that, that the introduction, I think, is, is stronger. There was one sentence that was added that I really like on that, what was thought to be the more uh, controversial part where we were dealing with worthy reception of Holy Communion and um, the importance of being in the state of grace, mm-hmm. invisible communion, and also visible communion. That means that uh, we are in communion with the, the church's profession of faith uh, and the, in communion with the bishops. But there was a sentence added at the end of that that I think really made things clearer. And it's uh, just one sentence, but I think it's, it's quite good. Or two sentences, and these are the sentences. It is the special responsibility of the diocesan bishop to work to remedy situations that involve public actions at variance with the visible communion of the church and the moral law. Indeed, he must guard the integrity of the sacrament, the visible communion of the church, and the salvation of souls. And I think that that sentence was really important because, in a sense, we're we're remarking on our own responsibility as bishops. And I think that's really important that we're to guard the integrity of the Eucharist. We're to guard the visible communion of the church. Of course, everything is ordered to the salvation of souls. How that is worked out is each bishop has the responsibility to, I mean, we have the teaching, but to apply it, Mm -hmm. and especially to apply canon law in this regard. Some wanted the USCCB to to kind of say how that should be done, mm-hmm. or the USCCB, the Episcopal Conference, doesn't have that authority. Okay. It's up to individual bishops to apply the canons. But anyhow, I thought that those two sentences were a good addition. Yeah. So when will this be available to the general public? It's available now. Okay. Yeah, it's on. It's been available a day after the meeting. Oh wow. Yeah, it's on on the USCCB website. Okay. Well, we will get a link to that and put it in the show notes so people can check it out. Sure. And then printed copies will probably be available in the next couple months, yeah, maybe? Yeah, I, I would think. I'm not sure uh, if the USCCB printing, I imagine they will be doing a, a printed version that can be distributed, but I have to check on that. Okay. Well, you mentioned this kind of three-year focus on the Eucharist. What, was this document intended to be kind of part of that launch? Yeah, pretty much from the beginning. Okay. Um, And uh, 
the three-year revival will begin on the Feast of Corpus Christi in June. Okay. And here in our diocese, in dioceses across the United States, there will be Eucharistic processions, Corpus Christi processions. Uh So we're working on that now, a big diocesan Corpus Christi procession. Um, Hmm. At this point, I'm planning on having it in Warsaw. We have to work out the details at uh, 3 p.m. in the afternoon on the Feast of Corpus Christi. So this is kind of an early invitation to to the whole diocese. Save the date. And I can't remember. Well, you know what? I think... I forget the date of Corpus Christi. It's of course it's in June, and I believe it's on Father's Day this year. So that'd be a great way for fathers to bring their families. Okay, it's June nineteenth. Okay, Father's Day. So mark your calendar, Kyle. I will come to Warsaw. And right. uh, I thought Warsaw would be a good location so that it's midway between yeah. our big population centers, Fort Wayne and South Bend. And uh, again, we're we're still working on the details, and because it's a lot of work to, you know, to uh, plan such a big event. Sure. Well, speaking of planning big events, it was decided to also do this. Is that a national or maybe even international Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis? National, okay. national, and that will be at the end of the three years. Yeah. So we did vote on that. There were other locations that were considered. Like, especially the finalists were Denver, Atlanta, and Indianapolis. Uh-huh. And for various reasons, the, the the bishops chose Indianapolis. Certainly makes it a lot easier for us. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> so I think we can have a lot of people from our diocese attending it. That's in 2024, I think. I think we have the dates even. Um, yeah, it's in July. Oh, I just saw it. It's July 17th to 21st. Okay, And Indianapolis was chosen for various reasons. It, it really had very positive experience with big events there, especially the National Catholic Youth Conference mm-hmm. has been there. You have the convention center in Lucas Oil Stadium, and everything's kind of connected, which makes it easier in the hotels. And yeah, there are a lot of reasons that the bishops came together. It's very central, too for uh, people throughout the United States. Right. It was interesting. I said, I think it said that 50% of Americans live within a day's travel from Indianapolis. Yeah. I never realized that. Yeah, it, it makes sense, I guess, because it is so centrally located and there's good roads in and out. Yeah. One of the things that came up when bringing this up was the budget of $28 million. And some were thinking that that was reasonable because you'd be charging people to participate and there'd be donors and things like that. Others said, this seems like a lot of money whenever our schools and parishes are struggling, sometimes financially. What are your thoughts on the financial aspect of this and if it's a a good investment in our church versus maybe a a frivolous one? Yeah, no, I think it's a good investment. I think the um, you can't have a large scale event like this without cost. I mean, yeah. there's the security costs, there's all kinds of things that have to be be done. I mean, when there's a papal visit, for example, when Pope Francis came a few years ago, that was very expensive too. Now, of course, even the security is even more when the Pope comes. But, you know, the thing is, it's, um, I think the more people are engaged in their faith and Eucharistically centered, they're also inspired Mm -hmm. to live their faith through charity. And I think in the long run, we see more commitment to the poor and the needy in that when people are inspired in their faith. So I don't see these as separate things, but in this day and age, it's the financial reality is is the financial reality. Right. And I heard some people commenting about how many seminarians credit World Youth Day as being a a big part of their realizing their vocation and this being kind of like a World Youth Day event. Now, the Pope probably won't be there. Who knows? Maybe we can write a letter and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and request yeah. his presence. But, uh, but to have all of these Catholics together to share and to learn from each other and pray together, you know, who knows what kind of fruit will come from that. Right. Well, I agree with you to- totally. And um, and someone said, well, why why these amounts? And I said, you know, just renting the venues? Yeah. I mean, that's expensive. Yeah. I mean, Lucas Oil Stadium, 
the Indiana Convention Center, the Field House. I was amazed when I saw all the things that are involved. You know, there's people who will, I think, be generous, uh, wealthy donors who are able to help something like this. I mean, even the large mass, when you think about the AV production mm -hmm. and all of that, that is expensive. But that's going to be telecast or live streamed sure. across the country. Imagine how many people that will uh, that people will will be seeing that. I've been to Eucharistic Congress in Atlanta and in Los Angeles, and then I was just down at National Catholic Youth Conference in Indy a couple weeks ago, and. There's a lot that goes into it, but also there's always a lot of vendors that set up, you know, publishers and stuff that want to sell. And it's a great opportunity to get a lot of, you know, Catholic books and get good deals on things. And so I'm sure that can offset costs as well. So exactly. Uh, but anytime I've been to some of these, it's always been like, oh, why couldn't we have something like this in Indiana? And yeah. And now not only is it like a, it's not a regional one like the Atlanta or LA Congress, but. Uh, this is a national event right here in, in Indiana, so I'm yes. excited about it. Yes. All right. Well, there's a lot more to talk about about the meeting that you had, and, and we want to talk about that. If people have questions for Bishop, you can text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598, and we'll talk about the cause for canonization of three potential saints, uh, feast day for Mother Teresa, and more coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop who's given us a little rundown on things that happened at the USCCB meeting out in Baltimore. One of the things that you mentioned the last time we talked about this before was the socially responsible investing document. Anything that was uh, mentioned when that was presented or any changes to that? or There was some discussion, but no, um, I think very few amendments. Uh, it was very well received. And um, I think it's really good that we have the, the updated uh, guidelines because these are followed not only by USCCB, but by Catholic entities, dioceses, Catholic institutions, universities, health, Catholic healthcare. I think the good majority follow these guidelines, so it can be, really have a big impact. And I even think individual investors, how many people really look at, if they have investments, do they look at uh, what they're investing right. in? And I think it's good for everyone to kind of see that. So. So people might want to check these out for their own personal investments mm -hmm. so that they make sure that their investments are, are um, advancing justice, that they're not investing in things that, that uh, hurt people mm -hmm. or that weaken family life. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I invite people to check them out. Okay. Is that available also? That should be online as well. Okay. Yes. I will find a link to that. We'll put it in the show notes as well. Uh, another thing that came up is the three people that were being proposed to open their canonization. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. This uh, In canon law, before it goes to Rome, for someone who could become a candidate for sainthood, the individual bishop needs to consult with the Episcopal Conference. So every now and then, a bishop will do that. And in this case, uh, the, this recent meeting, we had three candidates that there was this consultation where the bishop asked the rest of the bishops whether they thought it was opportune to advance on the local level the cause of beatification and canonization mm -hmm. of a particular person. Actually, two of them were from the same diocese. Very interesting. Bishop Douglas de Hotel of Lafayette, Louisiana, had two laypeople mm -hmm. that he proposed. One was a layman and one was a laywoman. And the bishops voted 
I almost unanimous, maybe it was unanimous, I don't remember, but overwhelmingly in favor. So, and the third one was from, um, was a, another lay person, a layman from Hawaii. So mm-hmm. the Bishop of Honolulu presented. So they give us kind of a sketch, kind of a summary of the person's life, and uh-huh. then the bishop can take any questions from the floor, and then and then there's a vote that's taken. So it was interesting in the case of the layman from Lafayette, Louisiana. His name, and I might be, since it's kind of French sounding, uh-huh. I'm probably going to butcher it. Auguste Robert Pelafiguet. Okay. And I apologize for all listeners who know French if I've mispronounced his name. They called him, he had a nickname, Nonko. Uh-huh. Nonko. But he was an unmarried man who spread devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And um, he lived from 1888 to 1977. He was an immigrant. When he was well, he was only like a year old when his family came from France and settled in Louisiana. But they they nicknamed him Nonco, which is from the French word for uncle. He was kind of like considered everybody's uncle, so they hmm. called him Nonco. He studied to become a teacher, and at that point in his life, as a young man, twenty one years old, he became a member of the Apostleship of Prayer League of the Sacred Heart. This was a French organization. But anyhow, after he graduated, uh, he he began to teach in public schools. He also uh, eventually became faculty of a new ca- on the faculty of a new uh, Catholic school, which was all staffed by women. Women, uh, sis- most were were religious sisters, actually Marianite sisters of the Holy Cross. So uh, interesting. Huh. So, um, but he offered his services at no pay. And all through this time in this town where he lived, he was known for his passionate devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. He went to Mass every day. He taught religion to public school children. He introduced uh, children and adults from all over to this devotion to the Sacred Heart. He even wrote plays that he directed for the children. So he organized the League of the Sacred Heart with about 1,200 members, and uh, they helped him to distribute these monthly leaflets in their communities, and he'd travel the roads on foot to visit with people and deliver these Sacred Heart leaflets to them. People would you know, pass him on the road, they'd offer him a ride, and he'd always decline because he, would, he saw his walking as a way of doing penance for conversions and for the poor souls in purgatory. <laughs> so he was a very simple man, radical. He lived in poverty, lived in a house, which many people would call a shed, and made a lot of personal sacrifices. And, and people who couldn't afford the, the dues to be a member of the League of the Sacred Heart, he would just pay for them. His fame for his holiness pretty much spread. And a lot of people knew of him and, you know, because of his spreading this devotion to the Sacred Heart. And he actually died on the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus Mm. um, in 1977. A lot of people then continued his work, providing religious, educational, and charitable programs to continue Nonko's work. There have been prayer services devoted to the Sacred Heart, and there have been many who uh, have given witness that he was a faithful servant of God. In the petition, he's also presented as catechist. So like he's not a martyr, he's not a priest. It's uh, Augustus Robert Pelafige, catechist. Huh. So wouldn't it be great uh, to see such a devoted catechist, uh, such a holy layman, you know, advance towards beatification? Yeah. Is this typical to have three people in a year? No. Okay. No, this is unusual, especially two from the same diocese. The laywoman that the Bishop of Lafayette, Louisiana presented, her name was Charlene Marie Ricard, Uh Richard in English, but Ricard. Uh, Of course, so many French uh, settled in Louisiana. She lived a very short life, 12-year-old Catholic Cajun girl. Hmm. She was Cajun. She was born in 1947, second oldest of 10 children. 
She was a very devout little girl. She was normal. She liked sports. She went to church. She would pray her rosary. After reading a book about St. Therese of Lisieux, she said that she would like to become a saint by praying like St. Therese did. Hmm. Imagine a little girl saying that. She was diagnosed with acute lymphatic leukemia and hospitalized at a Catholic hospital in Lafayette, Louisiana when she was 12 years old. It was only two weeks, then she died. And the hospital chaplain, who was a newly ordained priest, was called to her bedside, and he had to deliver the news of her terminal illness because the parents hadn't told her yet. So the priest told her and said, someday soon a beautiful lady is going to come and take you away with her. Mm. And little Charlene had a twinkle in her eye and smiled and said, Father, when the Blessed Mother comes, I'll tell you, I'll tell her you said hello. And then he had daily conversations with her about offering up her sufferings to the Lord. And she, she was very eager to do so. She would say, who am I to suffer for today? And even though it was a painful illness, she was very cheerful. Uh, she offered up her suffering to God. While she was dying, she prayed for others to be healed or for them to be converted to Catholicism. And there was a religious sister who was working at the hospital, also saw her calm acceptance of the sufferings and her prayers for others. Uh, and those who she prayed would become Catholic or those who would recover from their illnesses, reports are that they all happened. Wow. Yeah. So I'll leave it at that because I don't want to go into much more detail, but you can check that out, I think, if you did a Google search. Still, there are a lot of people who visit her grave and leave petitions and pray through her intercession. So again, her name, this little girl's name is Charlene Marie Richard. Sounds like a great thing to be able to share with our kids. Yeah. Too, you know, like something they can relate to, somebody young, uh, obviously with a great faith. Yeah. And the third, the Bishop of Honolulu, Bishop Larry Silva, submitted to the USCCB um, this cause of beatification canonization of a layman named Joseph Dutton. He was a man who was born in, in Vermont in 1843. This was around the time of the Civil War that he became, um, I guess, a sergeant or something in, in the Union Army eventually became a lieutenant and captain. And after the war, he continued to work as an agent uh, for the quartermaster on seminary construction duty. So they had this awful task of disinterring bodies from scattered graves and reinterring them in national cemeteries. Hmm. Um, he got married in Ohio, uh, but the marriage failed. His wife was unfaithful. So it only lasted like a year and then they eventually were civilly divorced. And, and he had a terrible 10 years after that. He called it his a degenerate decade. We don't know exactly what, but it sounds like he really lived a pretty um, sinful life. He had a big problem with drinking. But basically, he, he had a type of conversion, became determined to do penance, make atonement for those wild years of his life. He studied the Catholic faith and was receiving the Catholic Church in Memphis, Tennessee, when he was 40 years old. In 1883, he took Joseph as his baptismal name. He entered a Trappist monastery in Gethsemane, where he stayed for 20 months. But then he realized that he was really called to be in the act of life, so he left the monastery. And he had learned about St. Damien of Molokai, Father Damien, who was working with the lepers uh, on the island of Molokai in Hawaii. And um, he traveled there and went to the leper colony. And it was right after Father Damien had been diagnosed with leprosy and he needed help. So Joseph helped Father Damien and he was a great help to him. He took care of the church and 
the uh, the churches, was a confrere. He became an expert in caring for the medical needs of Father Damien and the other lepers. So he would spend all day treating and dressing, cleaning the sores and the ulcers of the of the lepers. He really knew kind of the rudiments of medicine and surgery. Um, Father Damien, after he died from leprosy, he had already established homes for orphans, uh, one home for orphan boys, another for orphan girls. And then, as you know, Mother Marianne Cope, who's now St. Marianne Cope, and the Francisca, Franciscan sisters had arrived to care for the orphan girls. By the way, Mother Marianne Cope made a request that, that Joseph be received as a th secular third order Franciscan, and that happened. <laughs> and then he took charge of the orphanage for boys, and he worked there for the next 35 years. So he was 87 years old, and he was nearly blind and deaf when he died at the Catholic hospital in Honolulu in 1931. So it's interesting, we already have two saints from uh, who worked in Molokai, mm -hmm. St. Damien and St. Marianne Cope. And now um, the bishop is proposing Joseph Dutton. So we, if, if that would happen, we'd have a priest, a sister, and a layman. Yeah. So these were approved by the conference. Mm -hmm. And does it go to Rome, or is it that yeah. that's all it needs? Okay. Well, I think the bishop has to continue with the diocesan phase. Okay. Um, and then eventually, it's quite involved. The cause of canonization is quite involved. Somewhere along the line, it will then go to Rome. Okay. And when it goes to Rome the bishop has to say that he did seek the opinion of the Episcopal Conference. He sought the opinion mm -hmm. of the U.S. bishops, whether it was advisable for him to initiate the cause. So he'll be able to say, yes, the U.S. bishops advised that he initiate the cause. Yeah. This is very preliminary, by the way. I okay. mean, this is in the sense that the documentation, the proof of miracles, all that still sure. would have to take place. All right. Well, thank you for sharing a little bit of their stories. Another thing that happened at the conference was you talked about walking with moms. Oh, yes. Archbishop Nauman, who's been the chair of the uh, Committee on Pro-Life Activities, uh, gave us an update on this wonderful program, which is going on here in our diocese. Very proud of it, called Walking with Moms in Need. It's a parish-based, really nationwide initiative of the U.S. bishops to better serve pregnant and parenting mothers who are facing difficulties. Mm -hmm. So basically, this uh this initiative provides parishes with a detailed process to help them walk with and accompany moms in hmm. their communities. So I encourage people to check it out. Um, I know a, lot, a number of our parishes are involved. There's a parish action guide. You know, so this is really a really, really important part of our pro-life commitment that our parishes be places where moms in need, pregnant mothers, and parenting mothers can go for help, for resources, for the assistance that they may need in their pregnancy or, or later after the child is born. And it builds relationships between ministries and other help, helping agencies. It's not that everything would happen there in the parish, but the parish, for example, could connect them with the Women's Care Center or with the Christ Child Society or a place to live, you know, so that parishes would be really empowered, I would say, to, to be able to offer any kind of support they can to moms in need. So you can read about it on the USCCB website. Archbishop Nauman gave a presentation of this to the U.S. bishops. We had already had a presentation a year or two ago. So this was more of an update, and it's going well, and it's, it's spreading. I mean, this is still in process. There are more and more parishes are getting on board. And here in our diocese, Lisa Everett, who's the director of our Office of Family Life, has been doing a lot to promote this walking with moms in need. Mm -hmm. All right. Sounds like a great program. So contact her, Lisa Everett, right. if you have any yes. questions. 
or Katie Burke on the Fort Wayne side of the diocese. Uh, they're the two of them work in our family life office. All right, great. Well, another thing that was addressed is the priestly formation. Yes, um, you know we're working for quite some time, a number of years, on the uh, a new edition of the program for priestly formation, and this is required because the the Holy See, the um, the Vatican has updated the program of priestly formation on the universal level. And each national Episcopal conference has to implement that at their level because, you know, these different areas of the world have different circumstances. So we all have to have our own program of priestly formation. The fifth edition, I was on the committee that worked on that, and that was probably, I mean, I wasn't even a bishop yet. So that was probably like 18 I don't even know how many years I'm a bit. Okay. It was probably, it was shortly before I became bishop. I was working on that fifth edition. So this is the sixth edition. And there's some significant changes. And one of them is now the church is requiring what's called a propedeutic stage as the first stage of seminary formation. Hmm. It can take place from one to three years, but it has to be a minimum of 12 months. And that is a stage that we have not had. It has to be separate from the rest of the seminary program. It could be take place in the diocese. It could take place at a seminary, but a separate part of the seminary okay. because it needs to have its own living area, et cetera. And this propedeutic stage is seen as, as really important as um, kind of preparation for going into the seminary. So it would involve just the beginnings of, of um, the spiritual formation. It would deal with certain areas of catechesis just to make sure that they have, that the, the young men have the basics that they understand, the catechism of the Catholic Church. And so it's also a lot more prayer, a lot more uh, spiritual dimension and the human dimension of formation. So it really is going to be adding a year after the propedeutic stage, then this, the second stage is called the discipleship stage, and hmm. then the configuration stage, and then the last stage is what's called the vocational synthesis stage. So when we look at the, uh, the um, discipleship stage, that would usually take place either in college or pre-theology, uh -huh. and the configuration stage would be during the the, the years of theology. Okay. And then at the end, from now on, bishops will not be able to ordain a man to the diaconate until they finished their theology. What we've hmm. done in recent years is after three years of theology, we've ordained them to the diaconate and then the priesthood at the end of fourth theology. Now it has to be at the end of either three and a half or four years of theology. Okay. Then they're ordained a deacon. Then they need to be in a parish for this vocational synthesis stage, at least six months, where they're serving full-time as a deacon mm -hmm. in a parish, could be a year, and, and only after that ordained to the priesthood. By the way, we don't have full authority as bishops. This has to be approved by Rome, uh -huh. but this is what they want. This is what Rome wants. So this has taken a while because we were having a little difficulty with that propedeutic stage and how to do it. Yeah. So this has been delayed for a year or two. But now that we've had more discussions with the, with the Vatican, which is the congregation for clergy, you know, now we're all on the same page. So we're just waiting for the final approval of the, of the Holy See, and then, then we'll implement it. So this is going to be pretty substantial. So are some dioceses already doing that first stage? Some have started. Yeah. Some have started that propedeutic stage, but not the, uh, but the majority have not. We have not. But has that been a, a good way of kind of testing it out and learning from what's working for them and yes. how they have it set up? I think so. I think so. And I'll want to talk about, to, um, especially uh, where we send Bishop Brute Seminary and, mm -hmm. 
in um, Indianapolis and also Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg, if they're going to be providing some kind of propedeutic year. Right. And if so, are we going to participate in that or are we going to do our own mm -hmm. here in the diocese? But that requires priest personnel and everything. So we'll have right. to see. So would this in theory add at least two years to a priest's formation? Yeah, I think it would. Yes. I mean, I think we'd have to, people come in at different stages. So mm -hmm. like, let's say it'd be different if someone comes already with an undergraduate degree, mm -hmm. then they would have to, they would still have to do a propedeutic year. Which they wouldn't have had to do before. So that adds a year. Right. So that would add a year. And then the six months to a year at the end right. as working as a deacon. Now, if one comes in as a college after high school, it would be a little different because one could arrange those four years of college where one of the years is a propedeutic year, but they can't take, they can't be full-time students during that. So right. they probably have to do summer school in order to graduate within four years. So it gets a little complicated when you get into the details. Yeah. And this is going to create more work, I guess, at least to get it started and figure it out what the best options are. Uh, are you excited about it, though? Yeah, I mean, I well, I don't know if excited is the right word, but okay. I would say um, I'm very interested. Okay, uh, I want our men prepared and formed as best as possible. Mm -hmm. So I think we just have to work out the details, but I am optimistic that it will be good. Is this something, looking back at your formation, do you think this is something that you would have gained experience and it would have been a beneficial thing for you? Or do you think the way that you did seminary was, was good and that... Well, I had six years. Um, I think that propedeutic year is a good idea, especially for a more intense spiritual formation. Mm -hmm. uh, I had good spiritual formation in my uh, when I was at St. Charles as a college junior and senior. So I think that was good. But I, I do like the idea of a more dedicated year of prayer. And this is like in the religious community, if a young man is studying to become a member of a religious order, they have a year called the novitiate, mm -hmm. which is focused on prayer and the spiritual life. So in a way, perhaps with Pope Francis, he sees the importance of such a year. Now, the propedeutic year is not all prayer, but it's it's that's kind of a principal focus. I forget which diocese is doing this, maybe multiple dioceses, but they're seeing this as a as a way to break from kind of media and like this addiction to our phones and social media and all of this. And so I, th I think they were even saying like you can only use a phone on the weekends or something like that to really try to get these men to engage in the prayer with less distractions is that is that a part of this as that well that is part or? of it okay. yeah and also it's a culture it's different culturally you asked about when i was in yeah. you know when i was at st charles it was the the late 70s you know just the culture was different oh for sure you know and like you mentioned the technology yeah so i think there's a greater need today than there was back then yeah all right well it'll be exciting to see how that uh, unfolds as it is approved and, and moves on. Uh, any timeline for that? Um, no, you know what? I, that's a very good question. I, I need to find out, but I would think, you know, when when's the actual date for implementation? That's the question yeah. I have. I don't know. All right. Well, one last thing before we go. Mother Teresa, St. Teresa of Calcutta, I know you're a, a fan. She was a part of the meeting as well. Yeah, you know, her feast day is September 5th, and but that date is, um, it's not on the universal calendar up until now. So even though, you know, her feast can be celebrated in certain places like India, she's not on the general Roman calendar. So individual Episcopal conferences can petition the Holy See, the Congregation for Divine Worship, if we would like a saint to be put on our U.S. calendar. So the request is that she be put on the U.S. calendar on this date, which where she celebrated in India, et cetera, September 5th, as an optional memorial. Uh, so that way we would be allowed. And one of the strong things is, is also, you know, the missionaries of charity, they serve in about 30 U.S. dioceses. Hmm. And, um, and they are allowed in those convents 
to celebrate her feast sure. on September 5th. The, the, the Vatican does allow that. But Mother Teresa's meaningful and popular with all of our Catholic people. Yeah. So we would really like to have her on our U.S. calendar. So really the, the Committee on Divine Worship of the USCCB presented this to the full body of bishops because of the widespread devotion to Mother Teresa and her inspiring example that that this be a uh, this be on our calendar so we all agreed now it goes to the congregation for divine worship in Rome and then we would get the texts if they approve for it to be on our US calendar then we'd ha- receive also the text in English for the prayers of the mass oh, okay. and, and all of that, as well as a text in the office of readings hmm. that we say in the liturgy of the hours. So the bishops overwhelmingly approved the inscription of St. Teresa of Calcutta on the proper calendar uh-huh. for all the dioceses of the United States. So how does the updates come? Do you just get a little uh, sticky note that goes in your lectionary or goes in your office yeah. of readings? Well, every few years, the uh, the Committee on Divine Worship will put out a booklet with them. But, but when it okay. happens, when it's approved, we'll get it via email. Uh-huh. So we can just print it out and okay. use it and put it in. <laughs> but then they do compile them because there's always new saints. Do you think you'll ever have an iPad for a lectionary that you bring up? <laughs> no, no. Okay. That is not good liturgically. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank Would you, Would you want to hear the prayer that's, oh, yeah. uh, you know, this is an unofficial, well, I think it might be a, 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 a official translation of the prayer that would be the collect, the okay. opening prayer for that mass. Oh, God, who called the Virgin St. Teresa to respond to the love of your son thirsting on the cross with outstanding charity to the poorest of the poor, grant us, we beseech you, by her intercession to minister to Christ in our suffering brothers and sisters who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, that's a great little closing prayer for us as well. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.